Hello, survivalists. This is the Crux True Survival Stories. I'm your host, Casey McIntosh, and I'm joined by Julie Henningsen and a special guest, Mark Niver from Alaska. I will set the stage for us before we get into the interview today. In April 1989, climbers Jim Sweeney and Dave Nyman embarked on a challenging ascent of the elevator shaft of Mount Johnson in the Ruth Gorge, Alaska. Their expedition took a perilous turn when Sweeney, leading the climb, experienced a harrowing fall due to a collapsing formation. The incident resulted in a fractured right hip for Sweeney. Facing treacherous conditions, Nyman initiated an extraordinary self-rescue mission, spending six hours lowering the injured Sweeney to safety. The climbers encountered multiple avalanches, losing crucial gear and enduring extreme conditions. Nyman's subsequent attempt to seek help faced unforeseen challenges, further complicating their dire situation. As their ordeal unfolded, a plane piloted by Mark Niver inadvertently entered the scene, leading to a crash. Niver and his passengers, undeterred by the crash, became unwitting witnesses to the climbers' struggle. The situation took an unexpected turn when the climbers faced additional avalanches, losing more gear and battling the elements. The story underscores the critical importance of communication tools and remote climbs, as the absence of radios significantly impacted the rescue process. A complex rescue mission involving helicopters and skilled mountaineers led to the safe evacuation of Sweeney and Nyman on April 26th. The climbers' resilience, coupled with a stroke of luck, played a crucial role in their survival. In this podcast episode, we sit down with Mark Niver, the pilot whose unplanned presence became a pivotal element in this gripping tale of survival and resilience. Join us as we delve into the details of this harrowing adventure, exploring the challenges faced by climbers in remote terrains and the unforeseen events that can shape the course of such expeditions. Mark Niver, a resident of Wasilla, Alaska, continues to navigate the skies in his aircraft. The connection to this gripping narrative came to my attention through our mutual friend, Matt DeWitt. Matt, who shares the commercial fishing ventures with Mark in Bristol Bay, will be referenced in the course of this episode. Additionally, the story was made into an I Shouldn't Be Alive episode, which is linked below in the show notes. I hope you guys enjoy. I love Montana. Oh, great. Yeah. When I was growing up in Minnesota, my dad, several years in a row, took us to Fort Peck Reservoir Mm -hmm. in Montana and deer hunting in the fall. Every year for many years, we'd drive out there, throw the boat in the water and go deer hunting. We did it before everybody was doing it. This is like the early seventies. So that's great. Yeah. Everyone's doing it now and fishing up. That's good fishing up there in Fort Peck too. Right. But Alaska got your heart or you went up to Alaska when you were 13 and you fell in love with Alaska over Montana, I guess, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Yeah, Alaska's probably Montana on steroids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love to spend more time up there. Have each of you been up there, up here? I have. I grew up in Seattle. My dad, his whole career worked for Alaska Airlines. So my whole upbringing, we had like free flights to Alaska. So I spent time up there as a kid, went skied at Alieska, spent a lot of time in Juneau. I've never been to Denali. But my husband was a big game hunting guide on Kodiak Island for years for Kodiak Brown Bear. Oh, wow. So I, I wasn't with him at that time, but I've heard a thousand stories a thousand times about his adventures. <laughs> and so has Casey. <laughs> he's, he's a true storyteller. Yeah, he really is. He's been on the podcast <laughs> too. Have you done a podcast before? N- have not. So this is all new to me too. So 
Great. So you got really motivated at a super young age when you went out to Alaska. When I was reading your bio, I was thinking like, wow, you were really driven. Yeah. Yeah. I just, well, my dad was a big hunter and fisher and I was along with him as well, you know, hunted and fished all the time. So yeah, coming to Alaska and just seeing the grandeur of everything and go, there's hardly anybody up here, right? And the biggest beauty I think of Alaska is there's not a lot of oversight, government oversight, uh, people oversight, you know, you can pretty much do what you want to do as long as you're not, you know, you're not bothering anybody else. You go off and do your own thing. You know, if I want to put an addition on my house, I can just put an addition on my house. I don't have to get much of permits. You know, I guess if I lived in, in Anchorage, that might be a different story, but much of Alaska is just very, it's a free state. It's a, it's what we all should be really, but yeah. You got your kids into fishing really young. They were like, you said 10 when they started going out on the boat with you. Yes. They're all started on the boats when they're 10 and still to this day. So they're in their thirties now. Uh, they take time off from work. They come out and commercial fish with dad. Uh, we have a great time. Um, they've got families. One's in Minnesota, two are up here. But I'm able to, you know, it was a gift I didn't know, know that I said, you know, I can have time with them, even, you know, as they're in their family life and everything else. They enjoy the heck out. And they'll probably bring their kids on the boat too. And, I'll, you know, I'm passing the whole thing on to them as I leave the fishery. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why, I don't know if Matthew's talked about, there's a lot of fight going on in Alaska for our fishery. They want to build a copper mine in the middle of our two largest salmon rivers. So I've been on that fight since 2005, testified ah. before Congress and a lot of things, but I want to make sure that the fishery is healthy for them, you know? Yeah. Well, I, it was interesting seeing that age just because Matt's been trying to get my kids to go up to Alaska. He's been trying to take my oldest one for the past few years. So ah, my husband, he's, he's 11. My mm -hmm. husband just, he doesn't have any experience. You know, we haven't been, I don't know. We haven't been around boat, fishing boats or we haven't had that experience really. We did get to go out on Matt's boat right after he had it built, which was really cool. Um, we went to the San Juan islands and like right after he had his boat produced, we spent three days like just driving around on the boat and camped out on it. And that was really cool. Wow. Neat experience too. Yeah. yeah. And it didn't smell like fish or dirty guys. So that was <laughs> even better. So tell us about how you got into flying. Well, my dad was a pilot for Northwest Airlines. And actually, so when I came to Alaska out of high school, my dad was actually flying a 720, Boeing 727 for the oil companies going take people from Anchorage up to the oil field, which is in the top of Alaska, the Prudhoe Bay oil field. And America, at the time, America's largest oil field. And still to this day, it's, you know, up in the top 10 oil field up there. But so I came to Alaska out of high school. I did work in the canneries, like I said before, but I got to Alaska. My dad was flying the plane. So I've always been around airplanes my whole life. My dad had a small airplane, even in Minnesota. So first thing I did when I got up here, my, I started taking lessons from my dad's brother who's lived up here. He taught me how to fly. So I, I was flying before I got my, my job up on the oil field. So, yeah. And then when I got my job in the oil field, first thing I did was buy an airplane. So <laughs> we all an airplane have a... And started flying and my dad had an airplane. And if you've come up here and spent time in Alaska, 
having an airplane flying around doing the things that I do actually is pretty common. Uh, there's, since there's not many roads up here, uh, every you know I think there's the per capita there's the most pilots, license pilots in Alaska, and then airplane wise I think the same thing. You know this lake I live on, there's four people that have airplanes you know in their backyards and they go off and do their thing just like I do. So it's quite commonplace. That's really cool. Did you pass that on to your sons? Are they pilots as well? You know, you know oddly enough, my just my youngest son is he gets behind the wheel, so to speak, when we fly together. But none of them actually have pursued going to get a license or anything. So no, it's kind of there's been a lot of you know I got a brother up here, a brother that passed that died in an airplane accident and is in a small airplane accident. Uh, you know, they were a part of this whole story that we're about to talk about. My kids have learned about so they. There's a lot of danger in it up here, you know. You fly 10 minutes out this, away from the house here, and you're in the middle of nowhere, Alaska. You know, things happen. And so they hear all that. And I don't know, they haven't never said anything, but I don't know if that's why they haven't pursued it. It's, it's, it's fun, but it can be dangerous. So, yeah, that's a long story to your question. That makes sense. Yeah, for sure. That definitely makes sense. That being said, when you're flying, do you bring safety supplies with you? What goes with you in your airplane? Yeah, yeah. Well, so there's a bit of the story to what we're going to talk about on the Denali. But yes, I carry survival gear. And yeah, it's kind of, it's a requirement. Nobody's around here checking you on that, but it's smart, right? Because like I said, you don't go very far. I've gone over here to the Prince William Sound. This is a few years before my Denali incident, but I flipped an airplane over there. I landed and, and we hit soft gravel and I flipped the airplane over and we got the airplane out of there. We had guys were flying by going deer hunting. They stopped and helped me get the, the plane flipped over and I flew it home, kind of wrinkled up a little bit, but flew it home and then fixed it. So that happens. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty wild. What year, what time frame are we talking about for this Denali story that you're about to get into? Uh, so that was uh, 90, 1990. So that's how long ago it's been. But it was quite an influential story because I can talk about it. Because of the accident, it changed a lot of regulations on how the climbers are now climbing on Mount McKinley because we crashed right in Denali Mountain climbing area. So back then, when we crashed, the climbers never had to have any kind of communication systems. Now they do. They have to have two-way, and it's much easier now with satellite telephones and whatnot too. But back then they didn't. So, you know, uh, nobody knew about our crash at first for uh, quite a while. The climbers that I was a part of helping rescue, they weren't supposed to get picked up for two more weeks. So, and we not got involved in the whole deal they would have perished actually. So on this particular day, you were just out for a nice trip with your wife. You were taking her out to lunch and right. Is that correct? Yeah. I had taken her up here up to it's Ruth Glacier. It's the Ruth Amphitheater. Like I say, it's right at the base of Mount McKinley. You're looking right there at Mount McKinley, but I'd taken her up there, actually proposed to her at the time up on, on this, in the same area. So I was taking her and the story doesn't show it in the video, but I actually had a third person in my airplane, a lady by the name of Marie Dunkel, who worked with me up on the slope. The main purpose of actually the whole trip that day 
was to bring Marie up there. But, you know, my wife wanted to go with, so we all three jumped in the airplane. And the reason why it's not in the show is that they didn't want to complicate the story. So Marie was left out of the story. So it was actually Marie, my wife, and I in the airplane. We were going to go up to spend an afternoon, and uh, we were just bringing lunch with. And so you asked about survival equipment. So my airplane is a smaller airplane at the time. I forego bringing my survival equipment in order to bring Marie on the airplane. So that's uh, that was part of the story. So we take off that day, Marie and I and my wife at the time, and the pregnant wife, as you know. So we didn't have survival gear with us. We just had lunch for the day. And your wife said was, uh, the video said was seven and a half months pregnant. Was that with your first child? Yeah, with our first child, yes. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we were new parents. There was not as much caution, you know, we were young new parents. But the, after the crash incident, we decided that she would not fly with me again until later on until we got the kids raised. I can't remember if this was a quote or if she actually said it in the interview that, hey, you know, we're in Alaska, things happen. She kept a pretty calm head about the whole situation. That's really impressive at seven and a half months pregnant with your first child after just experiencing a plane crash on a glacier. Right, right. You know how I are when you're young. It's things like that are kind of lighthearted in a way. Yeah. Does it make you cringe a little bit thinking about it now? Just, I mean, knowing. No, it doesn't actually, believe it or not. I was, you know, because through the whole incident, I was fairly confident things were going to be all right. And I'm also that kind of a guy. I just, you know, I'm fairly faithful and confident that things will turn out all right. I'm not going to give up and roll over, right? I'll fight to the end of whatever's going on. I like that. That's a good attitude. We should all take a note <laughs> of that and move on through our lives with that attitude. Well, you know, Julie, you know, with survival stuff, I think that's probably the whole key with people that do or don't survive is whether or not they have that willpower to survive. You know? yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that there's been research on that. You know, they boil it down to three personality traits that are consistent with survivors. And that's one of them, the will to survive, the will to not give up. Another one, interestingly, is a sense of humor, sort of the ability to kind of stand back and make light of it, I think, which also would go hand in hand with this idea of, okay, we're going to find a way out of this. We're not taking no for an answer. We're not, like you said, rolling over and giving up. Right. Yeah. So, and everybody, you know, the other people that, you know, so we took off that, as far as telling this whole story, I'm kind of piecemealing it as we're talking, but all the people that were up there in the mountain house, they had a great attitude as well. So even though they couldn't climb up the mountain to go help these guys, they still gave them what they could for survival equipment, and, but they all had great attitudes as well. That was part of the story. Yeah, I'm sure that made a big difference. So you're flying over the glacier and you yeah. look down and see an SOS kind of etched into the snow. What were you thinking? We're flying up there that day and you fly up what they call the Ruth Gorge. And it's it's uh, uh, glacier, and there's solid walls. And these were the mountains that these guys were actually climbing on. But we're flying up in there, and as we get up in it in the corner to to go into the amphitheater, 
You know, it's starting to snow and I realized, and I actually said earlier, I said, I don't know if we're going to be able to land today, you know, because it snow was starting to come down and clouds were starting to, to come in. I had said that. So as we circled around inside the amphitheater, the thought process was, I'll just make a swing, see the area. And as we circled around in there, yes, I did see the SOS and there was a fellow standing not far from the SOS kind of waving. And so my thought process was, well, something serious is going on here. And um, right away I thought, well, I need to see what I can do about this. So we circled around and I started to line up to, to land on this glacier. And you land on a, you're not landing flat, you're on an angle. The glacier's a hill on a hill. And, but I've landed in there before, so I decided I'm going to land. And Roberta had said, uh, you know, she, as you heard in the show, that uh, she said, Mark, what are you doing? And I said, we need to land and help out here. I lined up. They had a snowboard sticking in the snow, and that's what I was using as my depth perception. As it was snowing, and you guys said you've been skiing, so you know how a whiteout can look like, and it was starting to get that way. So I, I lined up on this snowboard to try to land, and um, and then I lost vision of the snowboard as I was coming in. I saw the fellow that was standing on a little bit of a ridge off to the right, which I knew was a ridge, and I decided to add power to get out of there to not, not land. Well, I added power, and I started to head towards this guy because I knew if I got over that ridge, I could get on out of there and reassess the situation. Well, if you're familiar with flying, I was kind of what they call the power curve of the airplane. I was behind the power curve of the airplane where I was just barely flying along and I couldn't gain any elevation. And heading towards that ridge, well, the plane stalled. We fell out of the sky. When a plane stalls, the wing stops flying and you go down. Lucky enough, if you guys believe in God, we fell straight flat, which was a good thing. If we would have had any kind of forward motion, Marie would have come out of the back. My wife would have come out of the back. It would have been a lot messier. But we fell straight down flat and blew out the landing gear, buckled the engine down, and there we were. And uh, this guy that was on the standing on the ridge, he came running down to us. And, you know, when you do crash an airplane, the first thing you want to do is get out of it because you've got leaking fuel or whatever like that. So we popped the door open and I'm getting everybody out of the plane and this guy come running down the hill. Funny, you know, you talk about humor. He look, he looks and he goes, first thing he says, he goes, this chick's pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. You're like, but, what? But anyway, we yes. got I hadn't noticed. <laughs> yeah. So we got out of the airplane, you know, everything was just, you know, still smoke speak. And, uh, Marie was okay. My wife, Roberta, was okay. And I was okay. Come to find out later on, I mean, Marie did hit her face on the crossbar. She had a good, good black and blue eye going on. Roberta's back was hurting her. My back was hurting me, actually, come to find out. But basically, we were okay. But from there, you know, we went up and stayed. There's a little mountain hut up there. It didn't look anything like it shows in the show. It's just this little octagon building that Don Sheldon built up there back in the 50s. And it isn't but about 10 feet across. That's where home was for the next five days. Wow. So to speak. Well, thank goodness it was there. Uh, yes. I tell people that, you know, when I took off, it 
my plan and God's plan was two different things. God's plan was for us to do what we did because that, that helped everybody get off the out. And Yeah. That sounds like ultimately is kind of what saved the situation. I'm curious how yeah. far from the plane was the hut just a short distance or was it a little bit of a hike? Shoot. It was probably two couple hundred yards. Oh, really close up in elevation, quite up to it. Um, you know, so after we crashed, the snow just started coming down. I mean, like blizzard type condition. So to get back and forth to the airplane, uh, we had to put stakes in the snow to follow, to get down up and down, which part later on in the story, as I tell you, to get down to talk to with the radio on the airplane, uh, I had to follow those stakes down. Otherwise there's a cliff and stuff you could fall had it not been for having the stakes in the snow to follow on the way down. So the person that was waving at you, was that one of the climbers or was this somebody that was staying in the ski hut? And were those two separate groups? Yeah, there was a group in the ski hut and this was one of the fellows from the ski hut. Uh, he was the one waving at me. So we went back up to the uh, mountain house with them or with him and met the other people. So I took the emergency locator transmitter all airplanes have to have in Alaska. I took that out of the airplane and brought it up to the cabin or to the hut and I set it off. It's a device in the airplane that's actually got a little weighted switch. So if you're crash with any kind of forward motion, the switch gets automatically set off or you can manually set it off, which I did because I knew when I left back home, I didn't file an FAA flight plan, but I did tell my closest friend you know, what we're going for the day and we'd be back. So I knew that the awareness would be raised by that evening that we weren't returning home and something was wrong. So we got in there, found out what this actual story was about. Uh, they told us what it, what they had done, that they had went back to help these climbers off the mountain. The one, you know, he had come back, uh, tried to get help. They went back and tried to climb up the mountain, decided they couldn't, they didn't have the expertise. So they told me their part of the story. And then we were taking care of business at our end. We didn't have our survival gear. So we all doubled up in sleeping bags with the people that were there. They were supposed to get picked up just a day after what we were to get, after we crashed. So they were down in their um, food supply. In fact, for the five days, all we had was a cup of rice between all of us. So that's all the food we had. We kind of rationed it out. I started going down to the airplane, talking on the airplane, trying to send out a message to if anybody would pick it up. There's a emergency channel 121.5 that I got on and and trying to get a hold of people and could not, you know. But I knew we crashed on a Saturday, and I knew on Monday the plane that takes me back and forth to work to the oil field, which my dad is a pilot on that plane, the 727, would be going by about nine o'clock in the morning on, on Monday. And I knew by then the cavalry would be noticed and everybody would be looking in tune. Was the the reason that you weren't able to radio and be transmit and be heard was because of the terrain? Is that right? It was just your two in there? Yeah. So you'd only yeah. be able to communicate with someone if they were directly overhead. Did I understand that? Okay. Correct. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. They call the Ruth Amphitheater. It's a huge area, That's but you're kind of in an enormous bowl. 
so yeah, the radio signal is really just kind of going up, and the plane back and forth to the oil field goes directly right over the top of this, you know, every five days. So Mark, could you, for the people that haven't watched the, I shouldn't be alive episode yet, I'm sure they all will, but can you give them a little bit of a recap of what the mm -hmm. climbers were doing and what happened to them before they, they were the ones that wrote SOS in the snow, presumably, or maybe it was the skiers in the cabin. Skiers in the cabin were the ones prior to us getting there. Uh, the climbers, you know, they, they got, caught up in an avalanche on their climb and one of them was busted up and so the one that wasn't he f made his way down the mountain skied back to this mountain hut was you know seven or eight miles up up the glacier and tried to get these folks to help them so he stayed because he was pretty exhausted really the two people followed the tracks back to the base of the mountain and looked up and decided that they didn't have the expertise there was avalanches going on they just decided that they weren't going to help. So they came back to the mountain hut. They put the SOS in the snow. Also, that the climber that wasn't busted up, he headed back to get back up the mountain to, you know, get back with his buddy that was busted up. So their story, if you're not watching the show, is, you know, every night after we got there, especially, uh, every night that they're trying to get themselves down off the mountain, they're getting avalanched on every night. You saw the one sh part where they got thrown down inside the crevasse. Amazing. That happened actually at night. You know, they showed it in a kind of a daytime situation. The fact they got thrown down inside the same crevasse, that was fortunate also. So, you know, he's got he's to pull his buddy up out of there. He's literally got his buddy in his that's in the wet sleeping bag. They're in a, all they're left is they're in one wet sleeping bag. And this is like, you know, it's, it's down into the zero degrees at nighttime, but he's climbing out of that crevasse with him and his teeth and his buddy, you know, they're clawing their way up out of this crevasse. And it, amazing. I mean, you know, like I say, they get avalanched on practically every night thrown around. It's like a marathon of just a beat down over and over and over and continuing to choose to keep going. Like I'm not giving up. Yep. Unbelievable. I'm not giving up. Unbelievable. So yeah, they finally make it down after the five days that we were up there. This is all going on, but they finally get down the base of the mountain. It's, it's Jim and Dave. Jim was the one that was busted up from the avalanche. But by the time they got mountain, down to the mountain at the base, Dave is the one He's the one that's actually most near death. He would not have made it another night, you know, in talking to them after we all got off the mountain on this. Uh, he was the one actually more, more close to death than Jim was, that the one that was uh, busted up in the avalanche. So and it sounded like Jim really was busted up, a dislocated hip, a pinched sciatic nerve, a significant head injury that was putting him in and right. out of consciousness and, and awareness. Right, right, yeah. And there's a whole storyline between those two. They, there's a one point that, you know, they're angry and he wanted to leave, but decided that, you know, they're gonna stick it out and get off the mountain together or not at all. And, um, you know, there was kind of that whole dialogue between the two of them that these emotions, what they're going through, is a story in itself. It's almost like a family kind of bond, almost like a brothership between the two of them yeah. to the point where you're like, yeah. I will die f 
for you and you will die for me. And that's just, we're just going to stay alive because neither of us want. Right. Like if they were right. that committed to one another, you kind of wonder if it was just one or the other of them out there, if they would have made it. Well, they right. probably wouldn't yeah. have, you know, it took the two of yeah. them. Right. Yeah. You know, and then the odd thing was, is a uh, funny thing to the story. Um, after they got off the mountain, there's actually kind of a discourse between the two of them, Jim, uh, after kind of settling down after all, he, he had a resentment towards Dave for that. When Dave left him to go back to the mountain hut, to, Dave got a resentment about that. And they actually didn't talk to each other for about mm. 10 years. That what? is so interesting. I was actually going to ask about that because I was just picking up a little yeah. dynamic like that, even from I shouldn't have survived. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious though, you know, thinking about that, the fact, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the fact that Dave went back is the only thing that saved him because that's what eventually alerted you to the SOS and the plane being, being on scene. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately what brought them back together. But for the longest time, there was a resentment between the two that uh, kept them speechless for a while. Yeah. Everyone process is different. And I can't imagine what kind of psychological effect living through that experience would have, you know, on, on so many different aspects. So yeah, very unpredictable, I'm sure. Yeah. So, so we go back to the mountain hut for those five days. I'm going down. Finally, you know, on Monday morning, the plane, what they call the BP charter, flies over and I get a hold of them. And, uh, you know, the very first thing I hear was, you know, hey, Mark, you know, because I knew the whole flight crew because my dad was a pilot. So, all, so it actually wasn't my dad who answered the radio. It was one of the other guys. His name was John Lane. And so I, I quickly tell him what has transpired. And then my my radio of my airplane, the voice synthesizer of the radio goes out to where they can't hear my voice, but they can hear me clicking. They try to talk to me, nothing's happening, and I'm just clicking now. So the military flies over that evening. I can hear the plane flying around and around. So I get on, went, go back down to the airplane, follow the stakes in the snow, blizzard. This is a blizzard the whole time we're up there, too. You can't see 10 feet, kid you not. So anyway, I, I get back down the airplane, get on the emergency channel, and the military is talking to me. So they say, okay, 8 o'clock in the morning, 6 o'clock at night, we're going to fly around here, and we're going to ask you questions, and you're going to one click yes, two clicks no. So for the next five days, 8 o'clock in the morning, 6 o'clock at night, they fly over, and I, I'm answering questions that they're asking about how we're doing, what's the weather doing, is everybody okay? And they're telling me things on the radio that, well, they're going to set up a crew of people on the base of Ruth Glacier, which is like, you know, it's about a 20 mile long glacier, but that's how bad the weather is. They got people set up uh, if the weather lists are going to come in and get us. So we keep this up for five days. And so what's happening that come to find out later on is that militaries flying around with their C-130s, they actually got, they got uh, Chinook helicopters up above the clouds that's what's causing the avalanches on human day no yeah. way that's something uh, to resent right yeah. there maybe that's what he should be resenting <laughs> yeah wow so after five days of this you know we're having one cup of rice a day my wife is actually starting to leak water, leak oh, water that's out. so scary so scary for her and you yeah 
But then again, like I say, we kept a good mm -hmm. attitude about it. I was certain that we were going to get out of this, us. I was really more worried about those, mm -hmm. the climbers. You know, we were going to make it because we had shelter. Uh, we, were, we had communications with the military. They're up there. I mean, there's a whole lot of people involved in this. And actually, also what happens, too, is my dad gets a, in the corporate jet with uh, BP's corporate jet. And they're they're flying that thing around up there trying to talk to us and see what's going on. And So um, were you able, with the clicking system, were you able to sort of effectively communicate the important logistics of the story, such as, you know, there were some climbers that were hurt and the plane had crashed and, or was it a more ambiguous picture that you were able to portray? Well, but you know, they knew by that time, our situation, they knew because they had been in contact, the, the uh, civil air patrol was all part of this also. Civil Air Patrol is a, is a system up here in Alaska, and I think even in the States, mm -hmm. that uh, goes in and starts doing grid work when people are lost and there is a survival situation going on. It's, a, it's an air patrol that they send up airplanes to start looking for people, whatnot. So in contact with all that, they knew who Jim and Dave were, that they were up on this Mount Johnson. They knew that the people that were in this mountain hut because they've been in contact with people back in Talkeetan, Alaska, where everybody flies out of to go up on uh, mountain climbing expeditions. So they knew everybody involved and they knew what their, everybody's story was. Ours, the people in the mountain hut, Jim and Dave. So they pieced it all together what the situation was. And, you know, and like I say, I was able to blurt out at the beginning of the talk with the BP charter, you know, Mountain climbers busted up. They're on the mountain. We're here. We crashed. And then, you know, they they were able to piece the story together and realize the, uh, the importance of getting in there to get us out of there. On the fifth day, we're out of food by then. And I just went down to the airplane, talked to the military. They said, no, weather doesn't look good. It's going to be a while longer. So I go back up, tell everybody in the mountain hut, and my, actually, Roberta does kind of start to lose it a little bit then because it's, it's, you know, it's starting to be a long time now. But so after that happens, miraculously, I mean, miraculously, a hole in the cloud literally opens up above us. And at that particular time, Dave and Jim had gotten down to the bottom of the mountain. A hole had opened up of weather above them. I mean, literally a hole. And the military was literally hovering up there with Chinook helicopters. They come in that hole. They land on the snow right by us. We go shoveling down there. I mean, we're up to, we're up to here in snow trying to get down out of the mountain hut, down to the helicopter. We get into the helicopter. Jim and Dave get into the helicopter where they're at. Up and out, everybody goes. The weather closes back in. You could not get back up there for two more weeks. Oh, that's so wild. That's amazing. Off to Talkeetan we go. Everybody heads off to the hospitals. Um, we're checked out okay. Jim and Dave are in the hospital dealing with their deal. Several days later, we go to meet Jim and Dave in the Anchorage Hospital. And two weeks later, I hire a guy out of Talkeetna that does these kind of things to go up there and get my airplane off the mountain. How does he do that? How does he fix it and then fly it or how does that work? No, he's going to go up there and when he goes up there with a helicopter, uh, actually a helicopter 
outfit. It's not his helicopter, but he goes up there with Saloy helicopters. They got a big enough air helicopter that can lift my aircraft. So they land up there, and all they could see of my whole airplane, by this time, after two weeks of snowing, they could see that much of my rudder of my airplane, and that was it. Wow. <laughs> so this guy had to shovel out my airplane. They ropes to the wing roots of the airplane, and they lift it up, and they carry it back to Talkeetan, Alaska. I think I sent you a picture of it, did Casey? Yeah. I, of, the, of the airplane. I know that you sent me some pictures. Uh, yeah, I think you did. I was wondering how much did you really have an opportunity to talk to Jim and Dave when they got back down? It was it just the timing on this thing seems just unreal. Yeah. Well, we got to talk to him in the hospital a little bit and they, you know, they're thankful obviously. And I kept in touch with the two of them initially for a while. And then, and then we just kind of drifted off and everybody started doing their own thing. And, and then, you know, a few years later, they, Jim got a hold of me about doing this shouldn't be alive story. So I said, yeah. What was that like? The whole reality TV thing. What's the it? What's the reality of the reality TV show production? The, um, <laughs> um, well, you saw you saw the show. So uh, one way mirror, and the cameras behind the runway mirror. So it's so you don't get kind of stage fright in front of a camera, right? So they're just asking questions, and I'm standing in front of this mirror or sitting in front of this mirror, and the camera's going behind. And, uh, we're telling the story and they're piecing it all together, going back and forth between some my Roberta at the time and Dave. And, yeah. It's too bad yeah. they didn't give you the opportunity to play yourself in the show. That would be kind of fun, I think. In the show? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, why not? Give <laughs> you a chance. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. So, you know, the hindsight of it all, you know, would would have been to to circle around and realize the severity of the weather and everything. Go back to Talkeetna, let the professionals know that fly in and out of that mountain area all the time, and you know they probably could have done something a little quicker and different. That's all hindsight. But uh, and also from there on out, anybody who climbs up in that area has to have two-way communications. Yeah, there's a lot more surveillance, so to speak, and accountability for what goes on on the mountain. It's It was up until then, it was kind of just really freelance. You could just go fly in there and people are climbing all over and nobody had a track record of who who's up there and for how long and all that. So that all happened. And I, I wonder, since that was 20, 25 years ago, there's probably more recreational use of, the, of that area, more people coming and going and... Is that true? Is it a busier place? Uh, it's pretty expensive to do all that stuff. Mm. I think now you have to actually put like some sort of a bond money up because things can get expensive. You know, I can't imagine what that whole rescue operation for us, you know, that was hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars with aircraft that were involved and people and everything else. So not that you have to put up that kind of money, but you have to put some money up. It might be less actually because... It's a serious, expensive operation that you're doing up there because you're so remote. Is that one of the changes that came out of this incident, the institution uh, of the bond? I, I don't know for certain on that, but I don't follow and goes on up there. It still kind of interests me years later because of our incident. When I hear of incidents and stuff that are happening up there, I kind of tune into it a little bit closer because yeah. of that. Yeah, so to answer your question, I don't know if that the bond money now was because of our 
I wouldn't I would be surprised. How did this whole story change your perspective on life in general? Would you say? You know, I still fly right, and I still go do never change anything. I guess just the perspective I talked earlier is that for us being husband and wife and having kids, uh, we wouldn't put us all in the plane together because accidents do happen. So that changed. But yeah, I don't know. Flying in Alaska is dangerous. You just got to be prepared. And yeah, I don't know. Life's still the same. I'm still a carefree kind of guy, so to speak. You know, do you feel like it's made you a more conservative pilot at all? Or were you pretty conservative to begin with? I'm pretty conservative, but there's a saying up here that old pilots and there's bold pilots, but there's no old, bold pilots. <laughs> so, yeah, I probably became a little more conservative in my flying. Yeah. I, I took all my sons up to this area. And my son that was in my, you know, that was my wife was pregnant with. I took him up there on his 18th birthday. We spent the day. I took all the, my other two sons up there one at a time. I wanted them to, to see because I knew the story. That's cool. The perspective that I have from just listening to you tell the story is almost like this piece of just the feeling of things are going to work out like they're supposed to. You know what I mean? Like you had to wait, but you had that patience and then everything worked out kind of like it was supposed to, Mm -hmm. right? You know, had things shifted just a little bit before or after, you know, say you hadn't been flying over that SOS when you had, you wouldn't have even known that it was there. Or had the weather not shifted just in the right time when these guys came off the mountainside, they, nobody would have made it out, probably alive at all. Right. You know, you guys had no more provisions, no, no. so everybody would have died. So it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Like the story could have been a whole lot different, but like I say, I got a faith in the higher power. So I felt confident that things were going to turn out. Well, I'm really glad that things turned out for you. So am I. It's an incredible story. And when I watched the video, I thought this has to be an exaggeration in regards to Dave and Jim's story. They were just getting pummeled by avalanche after avalanche. I mean, the chances of surviving even one, Casey and I both live in the mountains and are really familiar with avalanche danger and, and, um, you know, the impact that it can have when you're traveling in the mountains in those kind of conditions. It's mind blowing that not only did they survive multiple avalanches, but a fall in a crevasse already injured. And, you know, every, everybody made it out alive. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. I, you know, that's what I tell people about the story. I mean, you know, my part is, a, you know, I, I think it's a small part. Their story is just is unbelievable. Like say to, to survive one avalanche would be miraculous, but they did every night. And then, like you say, thrown down inside the crevasse and get back out of that and down the bottom of the mountain. And then, and then to be able to be rescued from that, like, yeah, that was a gift. I know. It kind of makes you think that you've never, ever had one bad day in your entire <laughs> life. <laughs> it made me think that. <laughs> like I challenge anyone who's having a bad day to watch that episode because, oh, my goodness. That was a wake-up call for me. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of those challenges that everybody made it through okay. Unreal. Unbelievable. What a great story. Day, is there anything you would want to say in closing? Is there any other thoughts that you have about the story? No, just I guess if if there's listeners talking about survival, just uh, always be prepared. You know, what's what's the Boy Scout rule, isn't it? Always be prepared. You know, have everything ready. Yeah. So. 
This might be too detailed, but I would be curious because that's, this is something I talk about in my class. What, what do you think are the essentials? Like if you're packing a survival kit for your car or your plane, what are the essentials? Just a handful of things. Well, in my car, I've got knives. I've got a toolkit. I've got two full snowsuits. I've got blankets and food would probably be a good thing for the car, which I don't have. So yeah, in my airplane, I carry freeze-dried food and stuff. So in Alaska, one of the funny thing here, survival, they want you to carry so many days of food. And one of the things they make you carry in the summertime or suggest that you do is mm. a mosquito net because you literally get mm -hmm. eaten alive by mosquitoes. Yeah. I was going to say you might wish for death if you didn't have one. Well, if either <laughs> one of you guys get up to Alaska, I'll give you my open invitation to come on out and, and I'll take you for a plane ride. In just 15, 20 minutes from the house, I think I sent Casey, there's an area that's got huge glaciers. I go up there, we land in front of the glaciers on floats in the summertime. Uh, I've sat there and had lunch and dinner and watched the glaciers. And But the whole flight is unbelievably gorgeous. And it's only 15 minutes from the house. So That's cool. She it, forwarded me the those videos. It looks amazing. Yeah. Where in Alaska are you? I'm in Wasilla, Alaska. Okay. Yeah, Wasilla. Yeah. Well, thanks for that invite. I might show up at your door one of these days. <laughs> Please do, really. Likewise, if, you, if you're in Montana. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll be in Alaska at some point. Yeah. Good. Good. There's nobody flies in Alaska for a long time that doesn't have some mm -hmm. sort of a story of things that happen. So, yeah. Thank you, Mark, so much for sharing your story with us. It's been super awesome to get to talk to you. Have a great rest of your day, Mark. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. Okay, thanks, thank Mark. you. See you guys. As we wrap up this captivating episode, we extend our gratitude to Mark Niver for generously sharing his unique perspective on the extraordinary events that unfolded in the Alaskan wilderness. Mark's firsthand account adds a layer of depth to this already gripping tale of survival. For those eager to learn more about Mark, you can find his detailed bio in the show notes. Additionally, don't miss the chance to delve into the I Shouldn't Be Alive episode and an insightful article that provides a summarized version of the story. All these resources are available to you in the show notes for your convenience. We encourage you to engage with us on Instagram at the Crux Podcast and share your own Crux moments. Your stories may become a part of our future episodes. For inquiries, suggestions, or if you have a story to share, drop us an email at thecruxsurvival at gmail.com. We very much appreciate you being a part of our community please don't hesitate to reach out to us. We so very much appreciate all of your support and we hope you have a good week full of adventure until next time.